Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, I will be speaking with Melissa D. Axon, PhD, on the article, Continuous Prediction Mortality in the PICU, a recurrent neural network model in a single-center data set published in the June 2021 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. To access the full article, visit pccmjournal.org. Dr. Axon is a principal data scientist with the virtual PICU team at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles in California. Welcome, Dr. Axon. Before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? No, I don't. And thank you so much for this opportunity to speak with you. Well, we're very grateful to have you here today. Melissa, this work is about using deep learning methods to provide a continuous assessment of a critically ill child. What motivated you to develop the proof of concept model? Critical care requires constant monitoring and evaluations of a patient's condition throughout their ICU stay. Is it improving? Is it deteriorating? There is long-time interest in developing tools that can automatically and continuously make these evaluations using data that are available to clinicians at the bedside. So there already are existing severity of illness or SOI scores for ICU set. On the adult side, we have SAPS, Apache, and we also have PLOT on the pediatric side. So that's pediatric logistic organ dysfunction. Also in pediatrics, we have PIM and PRISM, which were developed as population risk of mortality or ROM models for benchmarking purposes and quality improvement. But over time, we came to think of risk of mortality as related to or proxy for severity of illness. And even the scores that were developed to assess severity of illness are validated in terms of how well they predict mortality. But there are some common themes about these scoring systems. They are static. What I mean by that is they're not continuous. They look at data from a fixed time window say, you know, the last 12 hours or the last 24 hours, and they generate a single score, whether it's an ICU admission or 12 hours later or a day later. The second thing is that they typically use a limited number of variables. In the last several years, there have been studies that tried to repurpose some of these, you know, what again, I call the static scores, so that they generate a score in some regular manner, whether it's every hour, every few hours, or on a daily basis. And I think this, again, underscores that desire for a system that continuously and automatically updates. And so we wanted to build on that body of work, especially the more recent ones that focus on the continuous aspect while a single score at the 12th or 24th hour of ICU stay provide important information, we wanted a score that can reflect the changing nature of a patient's condition in the ICU. And that is what's seen, you know, a child improves or deteriorates over the course of the ICU stay. And can we leverage the increasing availability of electronic medical records, EMRs, and deep learning methods to achieve this purpose. So that is what we set out to do. 
Can you give us some background on deep learning and recurrent neural networks in particular? What made you choose RNNs for your work? I think deep learning algorithms and neural networks in particular, I describe them as stack combinations of many, many logistic regressions. Let's look at what a logistic regression actually does. Say that I have measurements at noon, for example, for heart rate, systolic and diastolic blood pressures, respiratory rate, temperature, and so forth. When I have a logistic regression, we would use the data that we have to determine a set of coefficients that multiply these variables. Maybe I'll have five times the heart rate, negative 1.5 times systolic, and so forth. We multiply each of these variables with those coefficients and we add the resulting terms, then apply what is called the logistic function. And I think you see a lot of models, clinical models that use this kind of modeling, a logistic function applied to a sum of these terms. But instead of stopping there, we do that again. So we have a second logistic regression with its own set of coefficients. And I have a third logistic regression, a fourth, and so on. So let's say I have 20 of these logistic regressions that I apply. And each one I'm applying to the inputs that I have. So now I have created 20 new variables but now I can derive another set of logistic regressions on those new variables that I just created. This is what we call layering. I have my input variables. You know, we can call that the first layer of variables. When I apply my 20 logistic regressions on those variables, I have created a second layer of those 20 new variables. I can create another layer applying logistic regressions on top of those. I keep building these, and I think that's what the term deep in deep learning really applies to, is I have a stack of these combinations of logistic regressions, and the way that I can combine them, we'll refer to that, you'll see the phrase, the architecture of the network. So I can keep doing that. And this process allows deep learning algorithms to combine my input variables in many more different ways than a single logistic regression. Of course, this process gives rise to many more coefficients or weights than the starting number of input variables. And this allows the resulting model to capture more complex interactions among inputs than a much simpler model. So then one could ask, wow, so now I started with 20 input variables, but now I have these hundreds of coefficients. Is that going to overfit? So that's a question that I hear a lot. And over the last decade or so, there have been many advances in machine learning to help these models manage hundreds, sometimes thousands of inputs with many more coefficients to maintain the generalizability of the model that I have built applied to a new set of data. Let's go to recurrent neural networks or RNNs. They are a type of deep learning algorithm that are specifically designed to process sequential data. So time series measurements. We think about the measurements that come in the ICU, you know, you see these monitors and so you have this time series. They really are quite well suited for those types of measurements. And in RNNs, they have a built-in mechanism that allows them to retain information from previous time steps and integrate that information with new measurements when updating predictions. 
So for example, when I said, okay, I have my measurements at 12 noon, but instead of just using that information in isolation, when I make my prediction after I receive that information, there is actually a connection within that model to information that I gathered from earlier in the day, from 11.30, from 10 o'clock, from 8 o'clock, and so forth. And that's the term recurrent in front of that recurrent neural network. That's what it refers to, that mechanism. In theory, the RNN can learn temporal trends in the data as it acquires measurements. And again, I think that makes them really well suited to manage these streaming sets of data that come in into the What is the key difference between this model and other models of severity of illness, such as the PIM2, PRISM3, PLOD, etc.? One thing is, like I mentioned earlier, they can manage many more variables. And so in our case, the RNN model, the proof of concept model that we have, it uses more than 400 inputs describing vital signs, laboratory results, medications, and interventions. Also, that dynamic integration of time series data, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, this is a result of that built-in mechanism. Let's look at PIM, PIM2, PRISM3, PRISM4. They are static and not continuously updating. So they make a single prediction. For PRISM3, there's a 12th and 24th hour version. And we have PLOD that can update every 24 hours, but each 24-hour period in PLOD is treated independently from the previous 24-hour period. But as I was trying to explain earlier, the RNN model, it updates whenever a new measurement becomes available, but it does not operate on a fixed length time window. It has flexibility. And again, there is that dynamic nature to it. So instead of looking in isolation at my measurements at the 12th hour or at 2 p.m., I have the ability to retain information. So it is a very dynamic processing of the measurements as they come in. And that continuous dynamic aspect results in a trajectory of scores for an individual child, and it's changing in time. A child with a higher risk of mortality than another child is more likely to die, i.e. you think the more likely to die, you have a higher risk of mortality. I am more sick. And even within a single child's stay in the ICU, that risk of mortality can go up and down. If I see a 0.2 increasing suddenly to 0.9, and we think that reflects serious deterioration in condition. Can you describe the data and how you used it to develop this model? We have de-identified electronic medical records of children admitted to the CHLAPQ from roughly 2010 to 2019. And before the identification process, that EMR data were linked with data that were previously collected for the virtual pediatric services. Our data set has more than 12,000 PQ admissions or episodes, and the EMR data for each episode included charted measurements of physiologic observations, you know, from heart rate to the temperature. We have lab results, creatinine levels. We have the therapies administered from how much processors they received and were they on ECMO, things like that. And the VPS data included disposition information. Did this particular admission, did the child survive or not survive? 
We also have demographics information and we have diagnoses. But even though we have that diagnosis information, they were not used as inputs. We use them only to help us evaluate our results. And the important thing also is what I said, we have more than 12,000 episodes and that corresponded to a roughly 9,000 plus individual children. When we divided those episodes into a training set, a validation set, and a holdout test set, we made sure that episodes of a single child was in only one of those sets. Let me explain what those sets are. It's very important that when you develop your model, the data set that you're using to derive that model is different from the data set on which you're actually evaluating its performance. If you don't do that, then you will have what I call leakage and you might get very optimistic performance. You might be fooling yourself into thinking, oh, I'm doing really well, when you're really not because if you're using the same data to measure your performance as what you use to develop the model, then that will lead to very optimistic results. Again, we have those 12,000 plus episodes that we partition. So the training set, that's where we derive the coefficients of the model. You know, when I talked about those coefficients in front of those logistic regressions, so mm-hmm. we do that. And then there's this validation set. There are also these parameters, you know, when you are training these deep learning methods, there are parameters involved in how you train the model. And so you need to derive those parameters as well. And so you go back and forth between the training set and the validation set to optimize those model weights and those other parameters involved with the training. And when I finally have a model, okay, I'm happy with this, then we go to that holdout test set to measure the performance of our model. What challenges did you encounter while developing the model? So I'm sure everyone has heard the phrase, oh, data is really, really messy, messy, messy. And so we invested a significant amount of time trying to deal with that from curating the data, cleaning the data. For example, I was new to clinical and healthcare when I first joined CHLA and I always thought, okay, heart rate. But then when we look at the data that we have, oh, look, we've got all these sources for heart rate. So that's one step is we combine, for example, measurements from different sensors of systolic blood pressure and combine them into a single variable that we just call systolic blood pressure. So that's the aggregation of these different measurements and also curation and talking to the clinicians because when I say messy, you know, we'll get measurements and, and we look at them like, Does that look reasonable? And so there was really that back and forth between the data scientists and the clinicians, which I really appreciated. As a data scientist, you know, if I look at them, they're just number H. And so I needed context. And this is the other great thing, I think, of being embedded within the hospital so we could go into the ICU, go on rounds and understand how that data is collected. So when we saw numbers that were, let's say, 500 for our heart rate, well, we knew that was erroneous. And so, again, that that collaboration between the data scientists and the clinicians and how we clean that data, that took a lot of time. And so all these pre-processing and also ensuring that the measurements we're using as input to the model at a particular time is actually available at that time. 
we are looking at retrospective data. And so when I have a retrospective data set, trying to make a prediction at a particular time, I want to make sure that I'm not inadvertently using information from the future to make a prediction at a particular point in time. So again, that's learning, oh, we have this lab result recorded a particular time, but then we realized, oh, but that lab result did not come in until much later. So it was understanding a lot of these nuances about the data that may be obvious to those who have been in the clinical setting for a long time, but not necessarily obvious to us data scientists. And we're still improving on that process. So I would say that is really the hardest challenge and then formulating the problems. And even now when we are working with clinicians on other problems, really trying to understand the data. Do we have the data that can answer the question that you are asking? And that is something that I've really come to appreciate and I find very fascinating. You ask a clinical problem, in our case, you know, choosing the risk of mortality, that was what I would call one of the easier targets because it is easier to define. We have this variable called disposition, survive, not survive. But that's not always the case for these other clinical problems. It is really understanding the data to make sure that we're asking the right questions. I think that's the real challenge. Applying the machine learning, we're very lucky that community has developed a lot of the tools. And I find it really fascinating when we have collaborations with our clinical team, where we always say to them, oh, you know what, the machine learning aspect, that's the easier side. <laughs> the hard part for us is understanding what's really going on, because are we applying them correctly? It's the most challenging, but it's also the most fascinating for me and satisfying, I suppose. So yeah, data, understanding it, cleaning it, <laughs> making sure we're communicating properly with the clinicians to understand that data. How did you evaluate the model? We're trying to build this severity of illness, but we develop it as a risk of mortality assessment. Again, with the notion that if I have a higher risk of mortality, then I'm sicker. So when we did the evaluations of the predictions, we evaluated in terms of how well it could discriminate between survivors and non-survivors. So this is the binary classification problem. One of the most common measures for problems like that is the receiver operating characteristic or the rock curve and the area under that curve. So AUROC, AUC, you will also look at precision recalls on the area under the precision recall curve. Those are the primary metrics. And when you have a rock curve or a precision recall curve, you can look at particular points in them and you can say, okay, so what was my sensitivity? What was my specificity? You know, my PPV, FPV. So we look at a lot of those things. Now, stepping back a little bit, you know, I mentioned before, the RNN is a continuous or a dynamic model. So it is making multiple predictions over the course of a single child's ICU stay, how do you evaluate that? So we actually chose some particular time points. Okay, let's look at our predictions. Let's say we have measurements at admission. So let's look at how well the RNN did with just that one piece of information that was available when the child was admitted. So we'll look at the metrics that I mentioned earlier on, whether it's the rock curve, the AUC, the sensitivity, specificity, 
you know, at a particular time point. But we looked at multiple time points as well. At admission, we looked specifically at the 12th hour and 24th hour, and we concentrated a lot on the 12th hour. And the reason for that is we wanted to use PIM, PRISM, PLOD in terms of reference points for us. So assessing that risk of mortality, how well could we discriminate between survivors and non-survivors and so forth, something like PRISM the 12th hour version, we could use the PRISM AUC computed on our test cohort. So we could use that to sort of judge, well, how well did the RNN do in terms of separating the survivors and the non-survivors if we look at something like him or PRISM. So we did that. And we also analyzed how well it discriminated within subpopulations in our test set cohort. And so that test set cohort had more than 2,200 episodes and so we said, okay, if we look at the different age groups, because we wanted to be able to say whether you're looking at the entire PT population, at least as represented in our test set, but we said, well, how well can it discriminate within this particular age group? And this is where the diagnosis information came in. How well were we able to discriminate among survivors and non-survivors among those with neurologic conditions, those with respiratory conditions, and so forth? We found some interesting results, actually. One of the more interesting ones, at least for us data scientists, and we talked to the clinicians about this a lot, was all the models that we, we use are RNN model. And then, like I said, we use PIM, PRISM, and PILAD as sort of these reference points and comparators, really. And the 12th hour RNN predictions, we looked at them in terms of diagnoses and that partitioning, that self-analysis, and all models, interestingly, we found they did really, really well on the 90s AUC, on the neurologic patients, and all models performed uh, worse on the respiratory group. And so we were talking to our clinicians and realizing that there were a couple of interesting things. One, we learned, at least, you know, for the data scientists, we learned in that respiratory group, it's a big catch-all. So you have all kinds of kids. And the other thing, I should have mentioned this earlier, there's this concept of lead time. So you're trying to make a prediction for the end of stay because that disposition survive or not survive. It's sometime into the future, right? And so you have kids that are short stay, you know, they're there for a day or so or even shorter. And then you have kids that are there for, you know, weeks. And so for those long-stay kids, it turns out also that it's harder to predict them. And that is to be expected. So that lead time is how much further into the future. And so for the shorter-stay kids, it's much easier to predict their outcomes. So if I'm making a prediction of 12th hour, you would expect that my 12th hour predictions are probably really, really good for those kids who are there in the ICU for just two days versus those kids who are in the ICU for a month, two months. And so what we found is that the models did the worst among the respiratory kids. Turns out that the respiratory kids had the longest stays in the ICU. So there were a couple of factors. So that much longer lead time into the future that you're predicting, you're much farther away from it. And so those were some interesting things. So these analysis, looking at these different groups to try to understand what was going on, part of the evaluations. Really interesting. What are the limitations of this kind of model? First is the single center nature of the data that we use to develop the model and to assess it. 
it's only from the CHLA PQ. We actually had an earlier study where we looked at a model we developed within the, the PQ, but CHLA also has the cardiothoracic ICU. So we actually applied that model developed only on PQ admissions, and then we applied it to the CT ICU episodes. So we could see the drop in performance versus the performance in the PQ. So that single center nature of the data, we never emphasized that this was a proof concept. So unlike PIM, PRISM that are developed on multi-institutions, so this is developed on just a single institution. So we do not expect this model to just deploy to other institutions. And we used hundreds of variables to test the ability of the RNN to handle those hundreds of inputs. And many of these variables may not be available at other institutions, or even if they are available, they are not standardized across the institutions. And so all those steps that we did, how we curated, aggregated the variables, the pre-processing steps that we performed on the input variables, they reflect the practices of our PQ where the data were collected. But I would like to know that the principles and framework that we describe here using the RNN, for example, though not its exact inputs and how we pre-process those inputs, how we partition the data, make sure that you have separate training, validation, and test sets, how we analyze those results. I think those principles are generalizable and can be used by other institutions. So what are the next steps? How might this model or others similar to it potentially be used in a clinical setting? One of the things that we're working on right now, it's a silent validation of the model. So this model was developed on retrospective data. We would like to do a silent validation at the bedside. And to do that requires a lot it's not really the machine learning, but many other aspects. So engineering to make sure that the data pipelines are in place. And so that is something that we're definitely working on. In terms of using it for a clinical setting, we need to think a lot more about the information that we need to display. So for example, how the RNN, the model, is reaching its decisions, its predictions, and how do we display that information to clinicians in a way that would help them? And it's really not a machine learning problem, not a math problem anymore, but it's a much wider collaborative effort among many disciplines, involving many disciplines. The clinical, definitely, how would it fit into the clinical flow? and a lot of the engineering aspects and working with IT, all those things, they are needed before these types of models can be used in a meaningful way in the unit. So I think that's exciting. And at the same time, the data scientists in our, in our VPQ team, we continue to collaborate closely with clinical partners in the ICU to identify problems that are relevant to them and can be tackled with data. I'm learning so much more in having those collaborations. And this is something that I really come to appreciate just when I think I'm beginning to understand a little bit. I keep learning and it is such a joy. I don't know if that's even the right word. 
It's just an amazing opportunity to be in this setting where I'm learning so much from the clinicians, how I look at the data and identifying the problems that are important to them and helping to formulate, well, how can I use the mathematics? Because that's where I come from. How can I use that to help look at these problems and maybe improve care for the next child that comes through the ICU? So those collaborations are such a big part of what we're working towards. That is really great stuff that you're working on. Do you have any further comments you'd like to make? No, I just want to say thank you again for this opportunity to address the audience of this podcast. I had a great time talking to you. Well, I'm really glad you could talk with me and I really enjoyed it as well. Thank you very much, Melissa. Thanks. We have been talking today with Dr. Melissa Axon from the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles in California about her paper, Continuous Prediction of Mortality in the PICU, a Recurrent Neural Network Model in a Single Center Data Set, published in the June 2021 issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care Podcast. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Thank you. Margaret M. Parker, MD, MCCM, is a professor emeritus of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit, ICU, at Stony Brook University Medical Center. She is a former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and currently serves as associate editor of Critical Care Medicine and senior associate editor of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. In her role as associate editor, Dr. Parker conducts interviews with authors of pediatric critical care medicine articles and other pediatric critical care experts. Dr. Parker received her Bachelor of Science and Medical degrees from Brown University. She trained in internal medicine at Roger Williams General Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island, USA, and in critical care at the National Institutes of Health, NIH, in Bethesda, Maryland, USA. She spent 11 years in the critical care medicine department at the NIH, where she was head of the critical care section. In 1991, she accepted a position in the pediatric ICU at Stony Brook University and became the director of the unit, where she served for 27 years. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants, and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.